This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we are back with you to talk about films and the love of films and our love of films. What's up, Danielle? It's, it's, been, a, it's been a real thinky week. I've been thinking a lot um, mm-hmm. because of our, our films this week put me in a place to do so. And um, yeah, it's, 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 I just got some thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Oh, listen, you know... So I'm going to be like full disclosure right now. Um, you know, we knew this this episode was coming. And yeah. when we were like coming up with a theme, which we which will be revealed shortly, I felt like it was I felt like oh this is such a joyous fun theme because it's so much about like who we are as people and we get to tell some personal stories and that's always fun. But then I rewatched my film and I essentially spiraled out and I t- <laughs> and I texted Danielle who has probably the busiest schedule of all of my friends right now. Like she has literally no time for anybody, let alone my stupid ass. And I was like, I'm freaking out, man. Like you got to call me. Uh, I got to talk about this movie, you know, for this week. And um, she was kind enough. We, we sorted it out eventually, but I, I was panicked about I it. I know. And look, I, I always have time for, you, you know, that, Thank you. Um, but also, I understand the spiral because even when I was watching my movie, I was like, whoa, I did not. I haven't seen this in a while, for one, because our theme, which we will reveal, uh, <laughs> will indicate why. But I hadn't seen it in so long. And I think what what it got me thinking about, because I did the, the true double feature with yours and mine, um, I did put my grandma to bed after my movie because I was <laughs> not about to watch your movie with my grandma. <laughs> No, ma'am. I mean, no, look, ma'am. That motherfucker's got a very good palate. She's got a good palate, but I did not want to talk about it or look at it with her. I did not want to have any conversations. Mm-mm. I did not want her to question what was wrong with me. I, I was like, you got to go to bed. But I did this like this true double feature, and it just made me think about something that I think you and I talk about a lot, you know, off the pod, um, which is like how we watch movies and how we talk about movies. And I think that when you have... Films like we have this week, which the subject matter is difficult and the visuals are difficult, it makes me spiral and panic a little bit, too, because I think there's, you know, I know that we have a responsibility um, to ourselves and to our listeners, and I don't want to be wrong about that. Like, I don't want to mess with with expressing how I feel um, and having it make someone else feel bad or like I didn't say the right thing. But I also feel like what what that also made me think of, though, is that I don't know any dudes who do podcasts that think that way. I think it's just a, a part of being like an empathetic person yes. that we're put in a different place. And I think that because our empathy comes through uh, to our listeners that, you know, they they definitely will 
tell us stuff and tell us how they feel in a way that I don't think a lot of other podcasts get. So I, I love that and I'm a fan of it, but it's a responsibility. It's a big responsibility. And I never want to, I guess what's weird about it and you know, instead of just dancing around it, I'll just say it. Uh, <laughs> what's weird about it is, you know, you and I are people who have a very specific approach to film and watching. Mm-hmm. And I think we're open to everything and we can process our own feelings about what we're seeing. But I get nervous sometimes when I'm like, oh, wait, because I do this so easily and it comes to me so naturally, I forget that there is a whole visual language that a lot of people just don't ever engage with. And that they're very black and white about things in a way that I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, I think that's where I started to kind of get a little squirrely too. Yeah. Yeah, this is a very, this has been front of mind, I think, for a long time. And I have lots of thoughts about this, and I'm going to try to be as succinct as possible, but, you know, no promises. (laughs) I feel like part of what I love about doing this podcast is that it is attempting to be inclusive, right? We try not to make this super intellectual or you know, hard to grasp. And because of that, I think a lot of people who normally haven't watched a lot of films or don't watch a lot of films gravitate towards it because it feels not like two, you know, film dorks, you know, in their tower pontificating about, you know, whatever, any kind of like, really dense esoteric film stuff, right? But it puts me, I think, and I don't know about you, and I don't want to speak for you entirely, but it puts me in this weird position sort of as as a, a film dork. I'm going to admit it as much yeah. as I don't want to. Or more or less somebody who has studied film for 20 years and mm-hmm. is uh, writes about film and, you know, is like a film historian of sorts, I have learned through that, through my experience and through my training, a way to sort of compartmentalize feelings about movies, right? So it isn't black and white for me, right? Right. As you said. And I have to remember to that a lot of people that are listening may not have that level of understanding or patience sometimes yeah. for, for movies and to be able to watch things that don't align with their sensibilities or whatever. And it's hard because I I'm I'm trying to 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 approach the podcast in a way that I feel like, okay, so you know, I could pick all these like really hard to find films and talk about them in these like very dense ways or whatever, but how is that going to be inviting to people? Mm-hmm. And I think that we we we've done a pretty good job of of making that podcast. But it is this issue that comes back and forth between sort of what our responsibility actually is. Right. Right. And like I said, I kind of come to it from this uh, this viewpoint where I'm saying like, well, we're here to kind of give our opinions about film. We didn't really make the films. Mm-hmm. We didn't, you know, I don't necessarily think that a film that we bring to the podcast means that we love it or endorse it or something. It's right. just talking about a movie that we want to talk about in the way that we want to talk about it. Exactly. And I think that sometimes that, especially now, (laughs) it's like, yeah, I think 
I think right now there we're in a moment where I think everybody feels like it's really important to have like a firm side on things. And there's a lot of times where I'm like, it's going to be complicated and I don't know what to say. This is going to be like this movie this week that I brought to the table is really challenging. I've seen Mm -hmm. it at three separate times in my life, which I will discuss in just a moment. (laughs) And, you know, there, there have been different levels every time and how I feel. And, you know, I know that there is stuff in this movie that is going to offend people. And this movie has offended people for so long. I mean, this is a very, one of the most controversial movies ever made. Right. And I just feel like there are times like the, that's where the panic comes in. The panic and the, um, and the spiraling come from this idea that maybe I might make somebody watch something that is going to (laughs) ruin their day. Right. And, but yet, at the same time, I'm saying, well, I'm just here to talk about it. I didn't make it, you know, or, right. you know, we're we're sort of not, we don't have to promote the film just because we talk about it. I don't know if that makes any sense, but. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a, it's an endorsement in a way to even discuss it, but does, it's not an endorsement of we love it, we hate it, but it's an endorsement of we want to talk about it. I think that every movie we pick for this show is just something we want to talk about. And as you listen to all of the episodes that we've we've had so far, we do talk about complicated things or the feelings that the movies give us, um, which are not always cut and dry. And I think mm-hmm. that is that is very important to me that we're always able to say like, hey, I chose this movie because I think it fit the theme well and I want to talk about everything about it, whether I hated it, loved it, it made me feel uncomfortable, it made me feel validated. That's what I love about talking to you about films is that I feel like from the beginning of our friendship, we've been able to do that. And it's something that I really value, but we didn't have a stage before. And so (laughs) I feel like, you know, it's, it's our natural inclination because of who we are, like you said, to be inclusive and to be aware and to be responsible. But it also, I don't want that to stifle us. Mm. I don't want that to make us feel like, well, because we are, potentially, you know, very caring about our listeners and what we bring to the show that we that there are just things we flat out will never talk about. Like, I don't want to be stifled in that way um, because I'm a Gemini and you can't keep me down. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, and I mean, I don't want to sound too much of a like. Well, that's life, baby. Like, you're just going to have to deal with uncomfortable (laughs) things. And that's just the way it goes. Like, I had some like really tough upbringing. But at the same time, it's that it's it's this moment where I'm like, well, I know a lot of people have problems with content. They don't want to watch certain films that they think are going to offend them. There's right. so many things online that will tell you, like, you know, we always talk about IMDb being a good place where if you want to, if you really are a type of person that does like, doesn't want to go into, bl- go in blind into a film. And you really want to be prepped, especially if it's something that you have sort of heard about being controversial, Mm -hmm. like a movie like mine, you know, like some of the movies we've talked about in the podcast. There's a place that, you know, you will literally lay out all of the content for you. There's a website that'll tell you if the animal in the movie dies. There's so many avenues more than ever than, you know, certainly when you and I were growing up. And so, but I also, I, I agree with you. I don't, I feel like with the proper context, you can talk about every movie. Like if you, even things that are terrible and fucked up. And I truly believe that like, I think 
having a discussion about a film is is powerful and it it may not be as scary to watch after you've maybe heard somebody talk about it or heard somebody discuss it kind of takes the sting out in some of it so i don't know and i think the the biggest issue really is is i find is when it's not as when a film is like blatantly totally offensive it's Mm -hmm. when it's very ambiguous when when there isn't like when you watch a film and you see that it's controversial in some way and the message is clear unclear or ambivalent or something that's a hard place to be right absolutely and that i think is what creates the chatter and the takes and the everything Mm -hmm. a lot of times people make art and they don't know what it means or they don't care and how do you feel about that and yeah, you know. and a good a good example too for me is is when we talked about the heiress, and I like my mind was blown when you said that you've talked to to you know other film folks and mostly men who felt like that Montgomery Cliff character really loved her and was really into her, and I'm like, what? Like from my lived experience and my worldview, it's no question that he was a total shifty motherfucker mm-hmm. who was trying to get one over on her. But to have to know that there are like people out there who are apologists for that kind of character, it's Mm. still worth talking about. And it's still okay to have that difference. But there are things that, you know, we will watch. And I think that we even gravitate to that are not as clear cut. And that's because that's what we like about art. And that's what we like about this particular kind of art. And I think it's, I think it's okay for us, you know, nearly a hundred episodes in um, to say that we understand our responsibility and we don't take it, lightly um we don't want it to stifle us but we also you know want you to have some responsibility as well so if like if you are someone who knows things about yourself like i will not go into a movie blind because it gives me anxiety then you know we want you to do your work too like it's part of maybe being an active listener to our podcast is that you know you are able as a listener to say well it's not their fault for talking about it and it's not my fault for not liking it, but I will do some work now, now that I know that like they, they will talk about things that I might not always agree with. Disagreement is great. I love a healthy disagreement. I don't like feeling like I can't talk about things because that's just not where I want to be as a person. That's not how I grow as a person. I like being challenged. I like being, you know, made to be aware of other people's experiences and thoughts. Again, doesn't mean I always agree with them, but I feel like my growth as a person and particularly as a person who consumes art is based in the challenge and based in like, you know, going in blind to things that I'm not sure how I will feel about and processing them in my own way. So I know that, you know, I don't love movies that feature a ton of excessive, inexplicable sexual violence. Do I watch movies like that still? Sometimes, because I didn't know that was going to be in there. And then I have to process it in my own way. So we will, you know, it's kind of the the the, the general content warning that, we'll, that we give for the, that we're giving for the whole podcast is that like, we will talk about difficult things sometimes and hopefully we will talk about them responsibly and we will always just naturally because of who we are, take different points of view and different experiences into account but I feel like I know that there have been times where we have felt stifled 
and where we have felt like in choosing some of the movies or choosing some of our themes, like, well, we could never do that. And it's not because it's not, it's not because we're just being like egregious in like, you know, this is a straight up snuff film or whatever. Like, <laughs> but it's just, you know, different movies, Lord of the Ring, like any movie that you think somebody could have any kind of issue with, it's difficult as a creator to come to a place where you want to be thoughtful, you want to be respectful, but also you want to talk. And um, that's all I want is I want to make sure that we don't feel like that as much as we have um, and that we don't, you know, that you know that we're not ever intentionally trying to put our listeners in a weird or bad position. There are tons of content warnings if there's particular things that you look out for in films as things that you won't ever watch then just do that work and like have some some due diligence because we do. Um, there are things that we don't talk about because we just don't want to. And, you know, we each have our own opinions about things that we won't ever watch. And so we don't talk about them and that's okay. Um, I just don't want to feel like, I don't know, I guess there there have been moments where I've been made to feel like people are not giving us the benefit of the doubt or really trying to like admonish us or shame us because we have made a decision to talk about something and, you know, not really considering that as people, we are pretty responsible and pretty caring and pretty open to discussions. Um, So that's all. I just kind of want to remind ourselves primarily Mm. um, that we can talk about difficult things and that we have the space to do that. And again, in a very male dominated landscape, I don't see people making the comments that we get to men <laughs> and I don't yeah. see them making the, the the comments that we get to men it, who talk about film and, and, you know, particularly like specifically. So I think that just because we are caring people and open people, it doesn't give, it shouldn't be licensed for people to make us feel like shit. Yeah. You know, it's because we're open to hearing everyone. Um, you know, I think a lot of dudes and a lot of people who do have film podcasts, like shut that shit down right away by being like, fuck you, Angel, fuck, fuck, fuck. Like, we don't want to be that. And we can't be that because it's not who we are. But I just don't want the open heartedness that we come to in this podcast to be like, well, we can just tell these motherfuckers every goddamn thought in our head. (laughs) And we can tell these motherfuckers exactly how they fucked the fuck up for me personally. Um, You know, we don't, want to do to do that but we also don't want to be stifled like i just i don't want to be stifled yeah i i completely agree obviously you know i keep going back to i mean this is again i'm i just told i just told everybody i was like i'm gonna not be so esoteric but i am gonna pull some fucking (laughs) film theory out i mean i i think images are seductive by nature Mm. you know film is a inherently glamorous medium it just yes. is. And that's the hard part is that if, 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 if you're a filmmaker out there trying to tell this like controversial fucked up story, you know, there are times where that will seem glamorous because of the nature of the cinema, by, because of the nature of film. You're watching yeah. images, you know, a lot of times if you're in the movie theater, they're as tall as a building, you know? Exactly. And, you know, so it's it becomes very immediate and personal to us when we're watching it. And so I think that's where it comes from is this, you know, it's hard to not be like sensitive when you're watching films. 
Yeah. And it's hard to not feel like if you're watching something you really don't like to feel like overwhelmed by it because of that. But like I said, I have to remind myself that not everybody has this training and this distance and this stuff that I've developed over the years. Mm -hmm. You know, like I said, not to get into this like art appreciation 101 lecture, but I'm just saying that like, I, I have to remember that in an effort to bring in people who are maybe new to film and who are, you know, not really... Um, you know, we get emails a lot from people that say that they're new to film and they never really watched movies before. And that and we love that. We love that. Yeah. But it is a challenge sometimes to remind myself like that, that everybody is this hard ass film bitch who's been in these streets forever <laughs> watching these <laughs> terribly controversial films. I mean, it's it's I have to remember like. Not everybody saw Cannibal Holocaust alone on Valentine's Day. I mean, they should. No, actually. As far as I'm concerned, everyone <laughs> should try it at least once. But yes, yes. And it is, and it is true. Like that is it is a responsibility that we take seriously and that we will take on. And it hurts, it it does hurt my feelings. I think if anything's bound to hurt my feelings, it's when it's when someone in my life or, you know, who's consuming any of the art I make, if somebody says like, you know, oh, I thought you were better than this or like, you know, something along those lines. Like, I just, it hurts Mm -hmm. my feelings to think like, oh, well, either you thought I was, you think I'm a piece of shit now or you thought I was a person who didn't have the intellectual capability to process something differently than you. Like, it's just not, either way, it's just not a good thing to hear or feel um and i don't think that i don't see us continuing on with this if we constantly feel like either one our feelings are getting hurt or two we can't say what we want to actually say like podcasting is a vocal medium duh um and if we do make egregious mistakes or outright mistakes we apologize um i don't want to have to come to this podcast apologetically in anticipation of somebody might not like what I have to say. I think it's it's a factor of being a person in the world that you can assume people might not like what you have to say. And that's all. I think we just, you know, we want to be, we want to have fun with you. And I think that, that part of that fun is that we are smart and cool people. And... Mm. <laughs> um, you know, just a reminder of like how we work will maybe help some people who are either new to the podcast or new to films and new to all of this. We like the inclusiveness that we have fostered. It was intentional. Like when we set out to do this podcast, we could very easily have done one of the let's talk for five hours about Kubrick podcasts. Um, But you and I both, I mean, I think we could have done it for like two episodes, but you and I both (laughs) kind of, decided to even decided to create this and do this because we want to be inclusive and accessible. So it's important to us that we remain so. And we just kind of want the same respect in turn that that your inclusivity of us and your thoughtfulness of us is, you know, in in doing that, that you're just reminded that we're we're whole entire ass people and that we are both very smart and (laughs) we are both 
you know, thinking about all the things you're thinking about, but possibly different and it's in a different way and it's okay. But yeah, I think, you know, when I look back at, you know, the things that we edit out and cut out and it's not like we have a whole like filth reel sitting out there where it's like, oh my God, these two are just being offensive for the fuck of it. Um, that's mm-hmm. not not it at all. It's just that, you know, when we pick movies, it's because we are making a podcast for us that we want to talk about these movies. And I think it's a joy that we're able to talk about them um, creatively and from a different lens. And sometimes that is for you and sometimes it's not. And it's okay. It's also okay to me, even in the, the, the effort of trying to be as inclusive as possible and as accessible as possible, it's still okay for me if we're not for everyone. Like that's fine. Yeah. I mean, your mileage may vary with every fucking thing out there like it's it's that thing where i'm like okay some people think we're we're you know picking hard films and then other people think we don't go hard enough it's it's you don't know every everything is different we're just doing what we want to do to the best of our abilities we hope that you appreciate and are on the ride with us we would love it if you were i like you said earlier i feel like we're doing a good job of keeping you guys aware of like the content and the trigger warnings and everything like that. Because quite frankly, there's a lot of film podcasts that don't give a fuck about that at all. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. They're like, fucking deal with it. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, there's, we don't give a shit if there's 45 dildos in this scene. (laughs) Like. I will always give a warning for more than three dildos. You know this. Well, we have this dildo meter back here that we have, we need to dust off because it's, we had it custom made, so we might as well use it. Um, (laughs) But yeah, like, exactly. Like I think, and that's something else that comes up for me a lot in that, um, you know, I don't know, and maybe this is something we can just one day ask people directly or find out a way to kind of poll how people are feeling. I don't know always because I'm not as easily, I'm not offended by a lot of things. So I don't know what will be offensive to people. Um, and I think it's a slippery slope sometimes of trying to guess what will be offensive to people. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I don't know. I just, I kind of long, a long, long, long time ago, before podcasts even existed, I decided that I did not want to live my life in a way that felt like I couldn't talk about the things I want to talk about. And I don't, I didn't want to live my life in a way that made me feel small and shut down. Mm. And so in everything I do in life, I carry forth a lot of um, kindness and generosity and love. And I, I want to be able to continue to do that when I talk about films, you know, I'm even in, I don't know, in the, in the, the job I have right now, which we've talked about a little bit, I, I hear from so many people all the time that like, oh, wow, like I've never met a showrunner who was nice or who was thoughtful or who was this or who was that. And I'm like, well, it's because I I don't feel the need to replicate the behaviors that I've seen in order to get the job done. And I think we bring that same attitude to the podcast. Like, I don't feel the need to replicate like a fucking Andrew Dice Clay approach to things to get people to listen to us or hear us or like us. Um, you know, I don't want to do that in any part of my life but it helps me to make art and to be creative if i know that that we're being given that benefit of the doubt yeah doesn't mean you'll like what we say or agree with us but that you're not like personally trying to insult us as human beings because you don't like the way we approach something 
Yeah, I mean, there have been so many times where I thought, like, when we did that rear window episode and I talked about a scenario in which Jimmy Stewart's boner cracked his body cast in half, I thought I was going to be excommunicated from every community that I belong oh. to. Oh, don't even, I mean, how 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 hard did I go on Gregory Peck thinking... Oh, grandmas and his family and relatives and the movie industry at large is going to forever excommunicate me. Yeah, well, this is this is the other thing. I think that that our comedy sensibilities might not be for everyone. And that's fine with me. Yes. I, again, learned that a long time ago. My family stopped laughing at my ass when I was seven years old. They're like, you are not funny. That is annoying. And I was like, all right, bye. I'll find other people. Like That's how I made friends and learned how to be a person is like my comedy mm. what i find funny is not for everyone and that's Same. okay because i'm not laughing at like the horror of the human condition or i try not to laugh at the horror of the human condition when it doesn't serve serve me or when it makes someone feel bad i don't know this is just it's a lot of words to say like we ain't bad <laughs> it's okay if you don't want to watch the movies don't make us feel bad for choosing them well, and then just and just know that, like you know, movies are they contain multitudes, and like I said, if you truly have um, you know thoughts and feelings about watching things blind, plenty of places on the internet that will tell you exactly what you need to know about a movie before you watch it. Just go to Letterbox; you can hear like every yeah. person on planet Earth pontificate on every aspect of film. It's um. It's out there for you. The information is out there in a way that it wasn't for me, probably right. for you too. We're in a true age of information. Uh, so if for some reason we don't, you know, bring it up, it's not because we're being insensitive or that we didn't know. Right. You know, so right. that's that. I Listen, thank you for talking this out with me, Danielle. Of thank course. you guys for listening. Just of course. And and maybe it maybe it'll just behoove us like we'll throw a couple of links in our link tree for like if you here are places you can go if you want to learn about movies before you watch them. That's okay. Mm-hmm. I could throw a link up in a link tree. Yeah. I think one of them is does the dog die dot com. I yep. think that's isn't that the website? Yeah. Um, very helpful. Very helpful. Very helpful. Well, listen, now that we've, like, psyched you guys up for this episode, let's are talk Are you kidding about- <laughs> me? Our listeners are like, the fuck is going on here? Everyone is fast-forwarded to this point. They're like, we do not care. No, I'm kidding. I think this all kind of became more more clear for us and more evident for us and brought up more feelings for us when we picked these movies. Like, we, I think we've both been feeling, like, on edge since we even picked this theme and <laughs> these films. So it's not surprising to me that we both had to talk it out this week, like, at all. Yeah, I know. And it's like, I don't think we came in with this intention to... We thought it was just going to be more freewheeling than it actually became. And then it accidentally started making us think. So, <laughs> it, that do happen it. sometimes. Um, sometimes it be like that, and we hate it every time. I know. Well, okay. So let's not. Let's just give them the theme. Tell them what the theme is this week. Yeah, the theme, which will explain so much of what we just said. Our <laughs> theme this week is: I was way too young for this. 
Yeah. Now you you have famously told us already in this podcast how you first came to your film. Oh, Do you want to remind yeah. people? Sure. I listen. Uh, I there. I'm on record saying this many and many places. So I apologize if you've heard this story from me before. But essentially, when I was eight years old, I watched my movie. Uh, which will be revealed in just a second. But it it was totally a turning point in my life <laughs> at that young age because I had I kind of don't even remember watching movies before this movie, if that makes sense. Like Yeah, it does. It's like a before Christ, after Christ scenario for me. <laughs> like, couldn't couldn't tell you. I mean, I think I watched E.T. Like when it came on VHS, but I I don't actually remember. Like this movie, I remember. This is like the first movie that I remember watching and processing. And uh, essentially, the story is uh, I was over at the neighbor's house at the time. Their stepdad was in the navy, and if you guys have navy dads or like a military brat, you will know that navy dads go out on the ship for months at a time. And so there were a lot of times where myself in my own family, but also at the neighbor's house were totally unsupervised. Um, And this was, I think, inherent to the era, which we sort of talked about a little bit with Leida when she was on our episode a while back. And so we were just out in the in the basement. It wasn't really a basement. I think it's called a den. It's like a den. Yeah. It's not a basement. It's like, but it's below the living room. If that makes sense. And their stepdad had walls and walls of like uh, VHS tapes that he had recorded with handwritten labels. And we just looked at the uh, tape and put it in. <laughs> and and that is what happened. And we sat through this movie, and. It broke my brain. It fucking destroyed me. I mean, part part of I think it, it says a lot about me that this was my first movie because then later I became, you know, a programmer of like cult movies and I wrote a book yeah. about cult movies and stuff. So I feel like okay, this had to have been the moment where something activated for me. Yeah, it is. I'm, and we will talk about that when we talk about your film because I have questions for sure about how it how it affected you, how it landed on you, like all of that. Um, yeah. And I think that it's it's again, it was indicative of a time that we had so much time to be unsupervised that we could discover things for better and worse that yeah. would affect us deeply for years to come. Um, and my film is definitely one of those for me. I, I, I think I, I saw it twice in my younger life and both times I was too young for it. Yeah. Um, and it it's strange because it doesn't seem like a movie that would have that effect. But I think, and I'll get into it, but I think yeah. I was just too young both times for very different reasons. And it's, it's pivotal. That kind of shit is pivotal because you realize a couple of things. I think I realized that one, art could look different, that movies were not just like the family movies that I always watched that were made for kids and made to make us feel good or whatever. Right. It opened my eyes to a world of, oh, wait, art exists and it's not always pretty or fun. Mm. But it also, I think, influenced me in a weird way, which yeah. we'll talk about. Like there's there's a real... um like. That line in High Fidelity, what came first, the music or the 
the, the misery, the music or the madness. And I feel like that about a lot of movies that I've seen. Like, what came first? That I had a horribly depressing childhood or that mm. <laughs> I watched a lot of horribly depressing movies that impacted my view of the world. Yeah. So I don't know, man. Like this this movie has all my movie has always stuck with me in a way that made me question that. Like if I had not seen this movie, would certain things have been implanted in my brain? And yeah. your movie I saw for the first time when I was like 16. I still think I was too young for it. I'm 45. I still think I'm too young for it. Like oh, your yeah. movie fucked me all the way up no matter when I saw it. Uh-huh. <laughs> like it still fucks me all the way up. A hundred fucking percent. And I, I will say to you for your film, I was really excited that you brought this to the table because I'm a huge fan of your movie. I even yeah. have a shirt. I have. Oh. I, I don't know if everybody any or anybody knows Built by Wendy, the yeah. does the company that made all those like cool clothes in the '90s and 2000s. But she she used to make a shirt um, of your film, mm-hmm. and I have it somewhere. I have to find it. But um, Built by Wendy fan. is the one who made my my Slapshot T-shirt. Exactly, exactly. We should try to get her on the the podcast. I I think that would be so fun. But the weirdest thing about your movie, and this is is something, I've seen your movie several times, obviously, but then it really hit me this time when I rewatched it. It's like, it's got this like backdoor quality to it where you're like, oh, this seems like it's going to be this like, it almost feels like an after school special, but then it gets really fucking serious. So bleak. Yes, and then I'm like, Oh, I feel like there's probably a lot of people like you that came to that movie thinking, oh, I'm just going to watch like these cool, you know, these teenagers doing teenage Mm -hmm. stuff. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute. It's like this whole other thing. (laughs) Like, (laughs) wow. And I I have to say in general and with both of our films, I think that's also where I learn to appreciate that quality. I like a movie that surprises me and that will have a twist or a turn or I go in thinking one way and I leave feeling like, oh my God, like I like that quality and I seek it out in a lot of movies that it's it's not what you thought it was going to be and it'll make you think about the human condition in a different way or at all. I I love those those kinds of movies and I think it starts with this. Absolutely agree. If you want evidence of this, please listen to our episode with Border. That that and, and and listen, it may sounded like I was traumatized by that, and yes, I was. But at the same time, I mean, what an amazing experience to yeah. be rattled by a film. You know, as somebody who has watched so many movies and has worked in you know this weird fucking area of of film dumb for so long, I'm like. Oh, I'm still fucking like shocked by movies. That's pretty awesome. You know? Yes. It is why I wear it like a weird badge of honor when you're like, I have been rocked to my core. And I'm like, great. I found something that made this old timer a little bit freaked out. And when was the last (laughs) time that happened? This is someone who programs John Waters movies for a goddamn living. And I freaked her out. Like, yay us. Yes. Congratulations. Uh, You did it. But I love that for you, like as, yeah. as a film watcher and as someone who is, a, to, in my eyes, a film historian, someone who truly loves movies. I love that you can still have that experience. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's fun. Despite all of my like consternation in the moment when we were recording, I I truly I was actually thinking the other day, I wish you to watch Border again. Let's give that another fucking spin. You know? Yes. I know. Now, 
Oh my god, I love I love that more than yeah. you know, especially because you you Instagram messaged me a picture <laughs> when you said just one word, border. And it was a, <laughs> a picture of a heavily pregnant woman standing in profile on a beach and there was like a little baby's arm coming out. Like oh, there was no. There was clearly a kid like behind her or next to her, but the way the picture was shot, you couldn't see the kid. You only saw the arm and you were like, one word, border. And I'm like, I have ruined this motherfucker's life. (laughs) It looked like the arm was coming right out of the crotch. Oh my God, that was a private joke. But no, I'm kidding. (laughs) But I I love the notion of you watching border again. Yeah. I, listen, I don't know. I, I, I feel like I won't probably watch Hereditary again, but I'd give it another spin. <laughs> you don't want to see Tony Collette sawing her own head off again? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of head trauma in that movie that I just can't. I can't, you know. And, and like, listen, it's not not all the time that I would rewatch something like Border, but I really feel like it. I need to understand it a little bit more, and I want to. And yeah. You know, I mean, so so much of doing this podcast, too, is just like we're just chugging through the movies because it's like we're just doing the podcast every week. And I watch so many fucking movies like ever, for all of my jobs that I'm yeah. just like sometimes I'm just like, all right, what's next? What's next? So for me, it feels like Border needs to come back again, make make Love a re- reappearance. So you might be getting some more texts. Hell um, yeah. Look, come come visit. We'll watch it. <laughs> it'll be great but yeah I, and I feel the same way like i like i like that um you know again like as someone who likes to be challenged by films who likes to rewatch things at different points in my life like i'm always down for that and i think that you know for this week in particular i'm really happy that we are going to get to talk about about these movies because i've always wanted to and yes. you are up first Oof. and i don't know if you just want to get into it yeah, we're just going to get into it. So, okay. My movie for the theme, I was way too young for this, is a movie that was made in 1971. The screenplay is by Stanley Kubrick, based on a novel of the same name by Anthony Burgess, directed by Stanley Kubrick, of course. It's called A Clockwork Orange. Oh, it was gorgeousness and gorgeousity made flesh. Okay. So, we've, you know, we've been dancing around this for the past 30 so <laughs> minutes. So. <laughs> Here's the thing. So I I have seen this movie three times in my life, all at different points. Like I mentioned, once when I was eight years old, I just discussed that. Once as a teenager, when I was in high school, and then once a week ago, as a woman in her forties. So that's right. those are the three times. Okay. <laughs> so I, I'm going to try to talk about it first as I watched it as a child because I feel like. That is a completely different sensory experience than it was when I watched it a week ago, obviously. But, like, for me, (laughs) A Clockwork Orange is almost, if you think about it, it's kind of like the perfect movie for a kid to accidentally watch and be traumatized by. What? (laughs) It kind of is. Because it has everything. It has everything. Well, right. Because here's what I think. And this is coming from my eight-year-old mind, because obviously I have experience, first-hand experience with this, okay? So I think it's not just the era that it was made. So, like, you know, we talked about this in the Zardoz episode. 70s films, they were were really trying it. Oh, yeah, they were on one. 
So there's this um, countercultural vibe that kind of goes through this film, right? But then also Kubrick can't deny that this is a, a part of his like visual style. You know, it's bright. It's modern. There's wild set pieces, wild costumes. There's pop art everywhere. We'll get to that in a second. The lead character of this film speaks in a slang, right? And it sounds like a secret language. And it kind of was a secret language. I mean, it's called Mad Sat. Is that what it was called? But it was apparently written in the original book that Anthony Burgess wrote. Yeah. That's a question I have, too, is like, I never read the book. Me neither. So I don't know how loyal this was to the to the the film was to the book, but yeah, it was a whole new language. Yeah, and it was supposed to have been sort of a mix between like Cockney rhyming meets Russian. Like I think the term "nadsat" is a Russian word. Mm. But yeah, so there's all this stuff going on with this film. There's some really goofy comedic moments in it. it so mm-hmm. it's, what I'm saying is that there's moments where I feel like well. For an eight-year-old, you know, yeah, maybe as a kid you're watching this thing and there's all these like bright colors and funny, weird people screaming and stuff, and you're and but you're like, okay, I can see why I turned it on, right? Right. But also, <laughs> all of this is baked inside this unbelievably violent and sexual story, which yes, was the part that horrified me. And changed my life forever. <laughs> okay. Yes. And did you watch the whole movie the first time you watched it? Uh yes. <gasps> yes. Oh my and god. I, I didn't mention this in the beginning, but um so we sat and watched the whole thing, which I think it's a two hour over two hour movie. Yeah. Uh I don't know why nobody came down in two hours to be like, what are y'all doing? <laughs> Again, the level of negligence is so hard to explain to the modern generation. Hours would go by before anyone would think to like, what are they doing down there? You could have stabbed someone in the goddamn face, Buscemi style. Yeah. And nobody would find you for two hours. So it's this thing where I'm like, okay, nobody checked on us. But then also too, like... I talked about this, I think maybe on a bonus where I said, I, we actually forgot what it was called. And, yeah. and I thought, I personally thought it was called Strawberry Alarm Clock, which is actually <laughs> not a movie. It's a band from the 60s. It's my favorite detail. I, I know. And I was like, you know, oh, I watched it. And I think I carried that in, like to, maybe to middle school where I was like, oh, I watched this movie when I was a kid <laughs> called Strawberry Alarm Clock. And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? And somebody, some dude probably went, actually, it's called A Clockwork Orange, and you got that wrong. And then he, like, grew a pair of glasses on his face and a goatee. It just, like, sprouted (laughs) as you were talking. Yes. So I'm sure I was corrected by a man. But listen, I mean... That's my other question, though, is, like, okay, so you watch the whole thing. My other, my true other question that I'm just, like, dying to know is... How, were you able to even process what you were what you were seeing? Like, did you know what anatomy looked like? Did you know what violence was? Like, what were you processing or able to process as you watched? Um, pretty much nothing. I mean, I I think I had seen boobs on TV before because <laughs> another uh, phenomenon when we were growing up was um, the uh, Playboy Channel that would come in crinkly on the cable. So every kid I knew had seen that. So I'm pretty sure I knew what boobs were. Um, Well, and and as we discussed in a previous episode, like 
boobs were not boobs were everywhere in the yeah. 80s like Everyone, full frontal oh, female nudity was all over the place a hundred percent definitely had not seen a dick or of any kind um may, maybe an art maybe art i don't know but like not we if that's weird to say i'll cut it you know, is that no, it's not because that's like, look, this is what we're talking about. Like there are you go to a museum, your parents can't shield you from the whole wing of the museum where you might see a dick in a picture or on a statue. Right. Yeah. And it's listen, I, I a, a fear, another fear that I spiraled out about when doing this <laughs> research about the movie was this idea that people were going to think that, um, you know, there were all these monstrous parents negligent right. monstrous parents around uh while their children were being traumatized i could i will say for me it was not that like these weren't bad parents they just were doing the no. best that they could and also it was a different fucking time so well also this is this is a good point like the age that you're talking about is when kids start to explore like no matter how hemmed in you try to make your life so your kids never see anything bad they're gonna see it they're gonna seek out some shit they're going to meet one friend who's like the porn in the woods friend. Yeah. And they're going to find out this shit. So it's, yeah. it has nothing to do with the types of parenting, even though the neglect was astounding in the 80s. Um, uh-huh. It was a lot of people doing the best they could. It was a lot of moms going back to the workforce um, for the first time en masse. It was a lot of, you know, dads being away and like growing up with grandparents. And like it was just a shift that allowed that natural curiosity that kids have yeah. to just kind of flourish a little bit. Oh, yeah. And when I, I mean, you know, I use the term traumatized in the sense that it was the images were traumatic when I saw them, but I don't feel like I, I am insatiably curious about things. Maybe it's to a fault. I'm yes. a total curious George. I am literally falling off of the windowsill. Like anytime I want to look out, I want to see, I want to see and do it. So yeah, it's that thing where if it, if it hadn't happened at eight, it would have happened in some other movie in some other time. It just would have. Totally. So there's that, but it it is just a funny circumstance to have watched this movie so young. But here's the thing, though. I like we gotta fast forward to high school because so that happened when I was eight years old, and it was very like, oh my god, I have no concept of what this is, but I'm watching images, and I know that I'm scared, and I'm I'm also like sort of you know it's it's titillating, it's uh weird. Uh, and all this stuff. So all these things are happening. And then fast forward to high school where everybody that I knew loved this movie. Absolutely. And the weirdest possible, like that's why I saw it when I, when I did. Yeah. Is because somebody in my life, one of my friends was like, this is a movie we have to see. You're going to fucking shit. You're going to love it. And I'm like, what's it about? I can't tell you. It's so weird. And cause I think we were at a point where, Again, when you're a teenager, you're looking for the countercultural thing. You're looking for the, you are looking to be freaked out a lot of the time. You are looking to be titillated and excited and like doing something that's taboo. So if you hear about this controversial movie, you are going to seek it out nine times out of 10. A hundred percent. I mean, first of all, I mean, sometimes I have to remind younger people that I'm friends with, like, this was an era where like the punk kids wore like Charles Manson t-shirts and mm-hmm. fucking like, I remember going through like horror movie magazines and skateboard magazines, you know, all these like places downtown where you would go and shop for like, you know, cool stuff, you know, Doc Martens and, you know, clothes. They all the t-shirts were like 
John Wayne Gacy and and Charles Manson, you know, Clockwork Orange. It was just like this thing where like there were like no stakes back then. Kids just no. wanted they just wanted to be provocative and they wanted to rebel. And it was just that was it. That was really it. There was no like big thought behind it. It was just fucking no. like, yeah, this guy's a fucking badass. Yeah, he's weird and crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, okay, that's it. That's all that people wanted at that time. That is all they and and the more pro, the way to be provocative in the '90s and in a world without the internet was by word of mouth, like yeah. finding out what was weird, seeing what was weird, going to these kinds of you know dens of iniquity yeah. of society and picking and choosing what you think would weird people out the most. And it was a very it was a very standoffish time. Like I think it was a, a type of fashion, a type of listening, a type of watching that made it clear to people that you didn't care about their opinion. You didn't want it. You didn't want to be, it wasn't even about being seen as much. It was more about like, get away from me. Like there yeah. was no bigger sign of don't fucking talk to me, get the fuck away from me. than like, I'm a, t- I'm a 14 year old in a clockwork orange shirt. Oh yeah. And like, here, here's the ironic part about all this too. It's like it got it was so prevalent that it kind of got played out a little bit for yeah. me. Where I, suddenly now I would go see like a ska band or I'd go to like Brit pop night and it'd just be like you know these guys wearing the shirts or they would maybe sometimes be wearing like the bowler hat and the eyelashes and stuff and I'd just be like man this is dorky like what is going on with this like I, and then everybody dressed like the droogs for Halloween and I just mm-hmm. was like. This is getting a little played out for me, you know, like. Absolutely. It's weird. It's very weird how that happens. We are yeah. like, this was once the most provocative thing I've ever seen in my life. And now I'm sick of it. And it seems boring and weird. Yeah. Oh, no, I know. It's so crazy how that happens. But then here's the thing. So that was high school. Rewatched it in high school with all my dumb friends. And we were like, yeah, cool, whatever. <laughs> uh, then it got played out. Then I have not seen it since like, right. I, I just and i think it was that i was informed by that high school thing where i was like yeah okay that's a real like weird crazy movie and all you're so you're such an edge lord you know whatever like you love it <laughs> blah, blah, blah. um but then you know i don't know and then I, then i started thinking well like maybe this you know needs a i need to watch it again because now i'm a right. fucking grown-ass woman and i want to see it again and i gotta tell you i mean i I, I felt unpleasant when watching it. I had a bad sleep. Um, <laughs> I, co- I oh. texted you and I messaged you and Casey. Casey, our poor producer, has to like sit through us having, you know, breakdowns and was just basically <laughs> like, I don't know, this movie is so violent and insane and I don't really know what I think of it. But here's the thing. All that, all that having said, that is age. Uh, that, yes. that is age for me. For me, it's age because mm-hmm. I gotta say there's a lot, a lot of weird movies, cult stuff, provocative stuff that I used to love in my teen years yep. that I just can't watch for various reasons. And I kind of think of it, I know I joked about that like Hannibal Holocaust thing, but like I kind of think of it as like, it's kind of like aging into lactose intolerance or something. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> you're like a kid and you're running around drinking milk with every meal and then all of a sudden it's like, you have one spoonful of ice cream and you're just like instant diarrhea. That's how I feel about some of these movies where I'm just like, oh, I used to love it and now I can't, I just can't stomach it. It's not what's going on. 
It's I age. feel you, and I I think that it's it's age in a way that like you have now spent so many years being part of the world and not just observing the world that some of that shit is just tiring where you're like, yeah. I cannot engage with this shit knowing what the world is like and what my world is like day to day. I cannot give time or credence to this shit anymore. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's true that when you're a young person, it just means more. There's just, it, you just want it. I wanted so badly to affiliate with rebellion and, um, mm-hmm. And weird things. I wanted to be so weird. I mean, my parents were the most boring people on the planet. I love them, but they were boring. And so I was like, you know, it's kind of like that Pat Oswalt joke that he tells on one of his albums about how he had like, these boring government employee parents and it made him want to go out there and like worship Satan. That's kind of the way right. it was for me, where I was like, you know, bring it. Like I, I, I had a very like, you know, my parents were not into movies. They weren't into art or culture. And it just forced me to go out there and just be like, what's the weirdest thing out there? I need to be around it. And so. Absolutely. And then again, growing up and realizing like the true rebellion for me as an adult is not in how weird I can get or because everyone feels weird every day when you're a fucking adult. So yes. that's no longer the rebellion. The rebellion for me is like, in spite of all the bullshit we live with, can I still find peace? Can I still be yes. <laughs> like a good, happy person? That's re- real rebellion is like that I'm not dead inside. Yeah. <laughs> or like canceling all your meetings so you could just sleep all day. That's like rebellion uh. at this point. But it's, you know, but here's the thing. So having said all that, now I've got this like arc of like my life where I've watched this movie three times. But like, there's also the task of like, trying to figure out what this movie is ultimately about too. Yes. And then I just have to say, if, you, if you're coming to this podcast to find that out, I got no, there are no easy answers when it comes to what this movie is trying to do or say, we don't have enough time to talk about it. At least I don't. And I've already even Hell said no. that to you guys. I was like, listen, if we have, this, is this at the spillover in a bonus episode? And so be it. But like, I have so many thoughts. It's too much. It's too much for you guys to handle. I'll just say it. And also, it's it's too much to, again, as we talked about earlier in the episode, it's almost not the point of this yeah. is to figure out what it's about. And that's not the conversation we're having about it right now. Yeah. I mean, I was when I was doing research for the movie, I was I went to read what Pauline Kael, the, mm-hmm. you know, fa- very famous film critic, what she 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 had a very famous review of a clockwork orange and she basically called it more or less she called it kind of irresponsible and she did this thing too which i kind of love where she basically called kubrick like she was basically like called him out for being that kind of guy that's like everybody worships him as this like great intellectual but then he made this like kind of hollow violent film and it sides with the bad guy and she just wasn't down for that and you know so she she hated it and then you know Roger Ebert hated it too. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a lot of his uh, review back in the day when it came out was he called it a, he wrote that it's an ideological mess, a paranoid <laughs> right-wing fantasy masquerading as an, as an Orwellian warning. Damn. Um, so, yo, they fucking hated it. But again, this is, they had been writing about this film in the seventies when it came out, but I got to tell you, if you you can still go on the internet to find people talking about Clark Gorge. In fact, I was doing a lot of a lot of that, like modern critics writing about it, and 
I don't know if you guys know Scott Tobias. He's a, a another film critic, but he said it really simply in The Guardian. And he just said, if this movie was released today, it would be a three-mile island level event for the take industry. <laughs> Which is exactly my feelings. Like, <laughs> to a T. <laughs> oh god i love that so much oh yeah that it's is it's beautiful listen i'm you know i'll just do a little bit of synopsis just to like orient you to what we're even talking about but but it's like the movie is centered around this character named alex and he is played by malcolm mcdowell the actor malcolm mcdowell and you know we did that episode about prep school a long time ago and i talked about my movie was if lindy lindsey anderson's if and I talked about in that episode how basically Kubrick cast Malcolm McDowell because he saw him in If, right? Right. And essentially, Alex is that, like, if you take the character that he played in If, he's kind of like this boyish troublemaker. It's It gets cranked up to, like, 75. That's what A Clockwork Orange is. <laughs> and it's essentially, he's this young guy living in this kind of, like, future, future Britain, like, futuristic Britain. And he's doing the thing. He's skipping school. He sneaks out at night with his buddies who he calls droogs. They're called droogs. And they participate in this thing called ultraviolence, which is ultra-violent. It's very nasty. They fight with other gangs. At the very beginning of the movie, they basically break and enter into a, a writer's house. It's a, it's a man and his wife. And they basically fucking beat and rape them. All while Alex is singing, singing in the rain, pretty gnarly, gotta say. And that's a scene actually that gets referenced a lot. Yeah. Is that singing in the rain scene, um, which is gnarly. Just have to say it. But, you know, Alex is the leader of this gang. and But at the same time, like all of his friends are kind of like starting to question his authority a little bit. And then one night they decide to like break into this lady's house where she's doing yoga with like a bunch of her cats. And Alex steals this giant penis sculpture that she has in her house and basically kills her with it. Which is the, that is a thing that I remembered from childhood when I was eight and I saw that movie. I was like, of course wow, you would. What is even this? If you, yeah, even if you don't know what a dick is, like that is a shocking scene. Shocking. And so the craziest part is that that happens and he tries to leave, but then his his buddies basically smash a bottle on his face and he's injured and then the cops show up and he ends up getting arrested and he goes to jail. So then it becomes this like second half of the film where it sort of has tinges of Dr. Strangelove where like Alex goes to the prison and like every person that he deals with in the prison is like a loud moron in a fucking uniform. Mm -hmm. Like he's, you know, it's a very, to me, it seems very Dr. Strangelove. But then he gets over you know, the course of a couple years, he gets offered the chance to be this test subject for a project that these doctors are working on called the Ludovico Technique, okay? And it's supposed to be this kind of like a version therapy thing to cure violent people like Alex, essentially. But he gets transferred to the treatment facility and he, he thinks it's going to be this like get out of jail free card. Mm -hmm. But then they end up like shooting him up with medicine every morning. And then they bring him in front of all these violent movies where they force his eyelids open with these like crank metal crank lever things. Okay. This, this eyeball clamp scene 
I will. Ne- I was never and will never be prepared for that in my life. That freaked me the fuck out. Absolutely. As a kid. Like, and it to- looks so gnarly and it's so visceral and it's so close. Yes. And it's like, even in the scene of what's about to happen and him being shown these violent images and on film and one of the films is like made specifically to look like him and his friends dressed up and like mm. the eyeball clamping scene is truly viscerally disgusting to me to this day. Almost as disgusting as the idea of a grown adult just drinking a glass of milk. I'm sorry, <sighs> but that makes me sick. Don't even get me started on this milk shit. I mean, I, that to me was like... <laughs> They go to the Korova milk bar, isn't that what it's called? And they and they oh. drink this milk that literally comes from this like faucet out of a woman's nipple. I mean, it's so insane. And the milk has drugs in it or something. But I'm like, yeah, the whole milk scenario really makes me want to barf. But it's, you know, I when I watched this again, I was like, hey, I can't believe like it's like they wouldn't. That would be CGI at this point. Like the eyelid opening thing Oof. would be, there's no way they would actually clamp an actor's eyelids open like that. And then they had this guy. You, This is also another very famous scene. You've probably seen stills of it. It's been parodied. I mean, it, I mean, it's kind of like the basis for a lot of horror at this point, but it's like, mm-hmm. there's a doctor that comes in and puts like eye drops in his eyes to like lubricate them, which Oof. apparently actually needed to happen. Like, yeah. For Malcolm McDowell, the actor, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's fucking vile. And there's also this, again, like the image that stays with me and has stayed with me since I first saw it as a teenager was when he's in that chair and he's strapped in. Like he is strapped down like straight jacket style with straps, like seatbelt straps over that. Um, His eyes are clamped open. He's got a big thing around his head that has wires coming out. And he does this expression. He has a facial expression where he just frowns like Ugh. he's about to start crying. And it, it looks like um, the only equivalent I have is that, you know, have you ever seen like a, a picture of a blobfish where it's just like, oh, yeah. like he yeah, looks yeah. like that, but his eyes are clamped open and you're like, this is the most miserable thing I've ever fucking seen. Yeah, it's um, it's terrible. And it's to like watching it when i was eight when i was 16 and when i was 43 i can tell you it was still very effective at scaring the shit out of me but yeah it is definitely also as an adult a little bit more shocking because it has such it has such implications about mental health treatments where they were where they are and how callously people treated you know any human being who needed medical care or correction or adjustment it just it brings up a lot for me yeah exactly and it's it's that, that's another part of it too the horror of it is that he has no choice i mean he, he this is what he signed up for because he you know basically agreed to be in this program because he thought it was going to be an easier time than serving his sentence and it, so it brings up a mm-hmm. lot like i said we could literally talk about this movie for five hours it's very textured in that way. But, you know, so he's going through these the, this treatment where he's being forced to watch these horrible films of violence and sexual abuse. And, you know, he starts feeling sick. And that's the aversion therapy part is that basically they're trying to they're forcing him to feel sickness so that he won't do this, obviously, in real life. Um, so 
after time, they test him in front of a panel of, like, scientists, and he passes. I mean, they put, like, a naked woman on stage, and he doesn't rape her. Oh, he can't even touch her. Yeah, and it's that thing where you're like, oh, my God, like, what a weird concept to be, like, proving that this guy is rehabilitated by, like, putting a woman naked on. That, to me, is, like, very... Very strange to be like yeah. thinking about when you're watching this movie. But so then Alex gets released from prison because of he completes the stream and, and he goes home. I mean, everyone's sort of ambivalent about him coming back. I mean, his mom and dad are like, okay, you're back. Yeah. We rented your room out to some other guy. And, and we basically like adopted him as a son. Like we basically have, have kicked you out of your home thinking you're either never coming back or you're coming back in 14 years. Yeah. And this guy's a better son than you ever were. Yeah. And it's, you know, uh, like, again, this is, it's so hard because you know how terrible he is. Like, you know that he performed all these terrible acts with no, you know, no, he didn't care. He had no cares in the world. But then there are moments where you're like, well, now he's going through this like prison industrial complex situation. And how does that change mm-hmm. your opinion about him? Right. So then, you know, Alex is having a hard time. You know, he's he would he would try to resort to moments of violence and get sick. Then at some point he ends up back at the the guy, the writer's house. And then the writer, you know, basically sort of is getting his revenge on him once he figures out it's him. And, Oof. you know, basically uh, decides to blast Beethoven's ninth. And that is uh, Alex loves Beethoven. And when he was in treatment, they made the association that Beethoven was going to make him sick, which mm-hmm. of course is like, take the one thing he loves and make turn it, it against him. Turn it against him. Right. And so he, it freaks him out so much that he jumps out the window, tries to kill himself. Right. And when he wakes up now, after that suicide attempt, he's in a hospital, the press and the government have changed their tune on him. Like the press is saying that he's, he was a victim of this like horrible, you know, government experiment. And he basically becomes like a celebrity. Like he pretty much like becomes the thing. Like they, he's, he's basically given everything that he wants. Like he's, yeah, you know, they, the, the guy that put him, you know, was the head of the treatment comes back and talks to him and they're playing Beethoven's night for him again and he doesn't feel any symptoms anymore. And then you're just like, okay, now the movie's over and you're left with this like crazy scenario, Ugh. which is like, well, now he's just back to who he was. And exactly. How do I feel about that? You know? And they made him out to be a victim. And even though he victimized people throughout the film, and like in horrible, violent, terrible ways. And they're making him out to be the victim now of his own government and his own world. And it's it's very, very complicated. And I don't think it's meant to leave you feeling good, but it really doesn't leave you feeling good. Yeah. I mean, I think the I think the obvious question is Okay, so what's more moral or something? Like being just a bad person or being programmed to be a good person, right? Right. Right. And 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 it's kind of the programming is such a big part of it because there's also this this 
the thing that, that I don't love about the movie is that it doesn't go too in-depth into any one thing totally. um, or any one train of thought or any one explanation of, of the world or the people. And so on the surface, there's that very basic, like, well, who's the real monster? And you're like, well, mm-hmm. Alex is a fucking monster. But <laughs> like, that's should not that's a no-brainer he's a fucking monster it le- it left me with a feeling of i f- entered this thinking i knew what was right and wrong and who was good and bad and i'm leaving feeling like everything is right and wrong and good and bad like i'm yeah. i'm leaving here you know the last shot of the film is so weird in its concept and it doesn't really explain beyond the fact that this is a character who gets weirdly everything he wants. It doesn't explain the unseen misery of like what he had to go through to get it. And like, I don't, there's just a lot that I could have used more. Like I, this movie is already two hours and 15 minutes long. I could have used another two hours if they would have thought to explain any of that. I would have taken it. Yeah. And like, it's crazy because you could really go down a rabbit hole of information about it and a lot of people talking about it. I mean, I think that part of like what Pauline Kael and Roger Ebert were, were discussing in their reviews is just the simple fact that it seems to be, it doesn't have enough of a a message about the violence. Yes. And, you know what I mean? And, it's a pointless film when it comes to, discussion, to discussing the violence. And that right. is egregious and irresponsible that they're not... I think, again, people have over the years just tied themselves in knots trying to make it make sense. And that's truly not the point of the film. And we would we also truly can never get there from what they've given us in the film that they again, it's just it's pointless to try to even explain away how irresponsible the violence is. And I think in my teenage years, I feel like part of what made teenagers at least the ones that i knew gravitate towards the film was that it seemed to be about this irresponsibility of the government of the penal system of everything conspiring against this guy right and i just think it's more complicated than that obviously and well, also the- not not to not to skirt over it but like this movie is very enticing to teenagers because they are people who do not have a fully developed prefrontal lobe yeah like it's very enticing to people who haven't like whose brains haven't fully developed yet because it's like like you said it's the colors and the shiny and the the violence and like that is attractive to people who don't have a a stake in the world yet yeah it's like i said i i'm trying not to like really like i'm trying to keep it succinct i'm trying because it, it i really do i mean my instinct is to go fucking hours and hours uh, on analysis and it's hard because it like i think that's what makes the movie remembered by so many Mm -hmm. people for so long is because of this sort of gray area about everything and you know shit i mean if 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 people are seeing it as this like cool punk fucking masterpiece and irresponsible at the same time i mean there that is a a movie that is something to th- to watch and to at least get an opinion on and think about in your own way and i mean i feel many ways about this film i mean i think it's unpleasant like i said hard to watch 
I also think that that's not a reason to to be scared of it or to want it to not exist or something. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. Like, I love like a deep text. Like, I like having to put on like critical thinking skills and to like walk myself through a movie like this, even though yeah. it is horrifically violent at times, where it's like very uncomfortable. Like some of the rapes so are, are really bad. And at the same time, I it, it, this movie has influenced so many people. There are so many stylistic aspects of the film that I enjoy, even though I do think it's like, there's so many like naked women and giant dicks and everything, like all the art on the walls. It's just sort of like kind of overwhelming. Yes, of course it is. Of course it is. And, and truly there is something to be said for part of the complication for me is that Malcolm McDowell is a very good actor in this God. film. Yeah. And, and he's so believable as Alex, like to an astonishing degree. And it's really hard to watch someone be that good at being so terrible. I know. And like, that is something that I read in both uh, in the Pauline Kael review. I think it's in the Ebert review. And I mean, even Malcolm McDowell himself said like, this movie has followed me my entire life. Like mm -hmm. he is simply a great actor and he was doing exactly what he was told to do as an actor. I'm not yep. saying, but it made his character so, I mean, we just had to overinvest because he's that good at it. And we're just, now we're, we have this emotional response to what he did in the movie. Yeah. But there's a, like, like I said, there's, it's just like, it's very complicated. There's things I hate, things I love. I love the Wendy Carlos version of that. What is it? Music from the funeral of Queen Mary that they use like <laughs> over and over in the film. Um, amazing. <laughs> But then, you know, there's also, like, my complicated thoughts about Kubrick as the, as a director, too. I mean, yes. shit, you know, you pretty much, if you have a, if you have a film uh, background or if you love film, you kind of have a requirement to have an opinion about Kubrick, it feels like. And, you know, exactly. my stance on him, is, it fluctuates so often. I mean, I love, I love the killing, but then there's also these other movies where he has these characters, like Alex in this movie and Jack Torrance that I fucking hate. So it's well, like, that's the very... thing. like we talked about this when we talked about The Shining, too, where like his method is kind of deplorable. And like the more you learn about how he treated actors and actresses on set and yes. like to get the effect of what he wanted, like it's it it's pretty deplorable. Yeah. And how do you enjoy art knowing that? I know it's it's very complicated. I don't know anybody who thinks it's easy. Do, do people think that's easy? Because I, I yeah. find it very hard to wrestle well, with. Well, this is so. part of the problem is a lot of fucking people think it's easy. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, you either like it or you don't. And I'm like, ooh. Yeah. But yes, it is, it's true. Like, it's, it's really, it's difficult for me to engage with an artist if I think that as a person, they were maybe not a good dude. And so when you watch a movie that is complicated, made by a creator that is complicated, like, where do you go? I know it's it is something that everyone is wrestling with everyone. I mean, well, I am I am happy to go deep on Clockwork Orange and a bonus if you have more thoughts for sure. Like anytime. Well, well, we might have to we might have to do that because we just are simply out of time to really get into, you know, everything that could be said about it. But I mean, for the theme, I will say that it was this was the only choice. 
Nothing yes. has rocked me as hard as this movie. I mean, it really was the thing that like kind of changed everything for me. Good and bad. I mean, you know, it like freaked me out. I'm not going to lie about, you know, nudity and, you know, violence, sexual violence, especially. I mean, obviously, how could you not be rocked by that? But it's a, also like it also like kind of told me that, like, I don't know, maybe this is stuff that I I could watch and form opinions on and you know, it kind of set a table for me to watch other kind of provocative, weird things. And then that just went from there. So this could be the only choice for me this week. And um, yeah, but I will say your film, I just, I love it so much. I have such a, like a personal attachment to it. So I'm just curious to to hear how you were traumatized by it. Oh yeah. And it's, you know, it's and this is again, like when I thought about, what film I could pick. There were several because I grew up in a, in a family that like I was watching Halloween when I was like four, like they didn't give a fuck. They did yeah. not give a fuck. Yeah. Um, if they wanted to watch it, I was going to watch it. And so there were quite a few options, but the reason I picked this one is that the, the event of this movie felt so personal to me mm. each and every time I watched it. And I was Again, way too young to watch it um, when I first did. But I'll just get into my film. It'll help me center my thoughts on it because my book, my my film was released in 1980. Uh, It's based on a book as well as just like Millie's. Uh, My movie. This could have been a a a book to movie uh, theme. Mm -hmm. Uh, But my film again released in 1980, based on a book by Judith Guest. The screenplay is by Alvin Sargent. And this was Robert Redford's directorial debut. My movie is Ordinary People. I don't want to see any doctors or counselors. This is my family. But if we have problems, then we will solve those problems in the privacy of our own home. So I think the first time I remember seeing this movie, I was like nine, like Mm. nine or ten. And it was one of those movies that, you know, like, again, VHS was big. And my grandparents would rent movies like this in terms of endearment and just be like, this was a good movie. Like they went and saw it in the theaters and loved it and wanted to watch it again because, you know, they had no chance to see it until it came out on VHS. Mm -hmm. So they would go and rent it. And me being a little shit would sit on the couch and be like, I'm going to watch whatever they watch because I'm an adult and I'm smart and cool. And then I would be like crying halfway through a movie and they'd be like, get the fuck out of here. So... Like, you're ruining this for me. Get the fuck out of here. Um, so this movie, again, it was direct. This was, again, Robert Redford could not have been a bigger movie star when he pivoted to directing and wanted to do something different in his life. And there is a whole article. It's kind of an oral history of this this film mm. that was released. It was a, an Entertainment Weekly article that I read called The Untold Story of Ordinary People. And you get so many moments about how this film came to be. But just just to center you a little bit, like Robert Redford, huge, huge, huge movie star, and then does this kind of film is right out of the gate. Like he was making a statement with this film, mm-hmm. not just by being a director, but by saying, these are the kinds of stories I'm interested in telling. So it yeah. was a whole thing. And this movie was fucking huge. It won four Oscars. It won for Best Picture. It won for Best Director. Timothy Hutton won for Best Supporting Actor. And it won for Best uh, Adapted Screenplay. And it won six Golden Globes. Like, it was huge. It made a ton of money. Everyone on the damn 
planet or at least everyone in America saw this fucking movie, mm-hmm. which is weird because it's a movie. It's a very quiet movie about a family that is falling apart. And one thing that I absolutely love about this movie is that it presented in a way that it is it is a constant mystery that is unfolding. So we have our main characters all acting heavyweights. Um, you have Timothy Hutton playing Conrad Jarrett, who's a teen that kind of is the, the center of this film, the POV of this film. Donald Sutherland plays his dad, Calvin. Mary Tyler Moore plays his mom, Beth, which again, Mary Tyler Moore, like lady throwing her hat up in a sitcom on TV mm. to this like ice queen bitch role. Oh, um, it was a move. It was a shift for everyone. You've got Judd Hirsch playing Dr. Berger. M. Emmett Walsh, our fave, <laughs> shows up as a swim coach. And this was a first role or an early role for um, Elizabeth McGovern. She plays mm-hmm. Janine Pratt. Total baby-faced Elizabeth McGovern. Dinah Manhoff is in it. She plays Karen, who's a friend of Conrad's. And you'll also recognize, uh, you'll recognize this one guy and you'll be like, who is that? It's Adam Baldwin, also known as Jane from Firefly, uh, playing one of Conrad's friends as well. So it's got this real heavyweight cast with an absolutely heavy, heavyweight director, although no one knew at the time how that was going to work out. And again, it's a movie that's like about this family that's falling apart. So my my very quick one sentence synopsis, if I can, is that on the heels of a death, a young son realizes that the cracks in his family are actually sinkholes. That's a great one. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. And it's got like it's got this totally silent opening. It was filmed in the North Shore of Chicago. Yeah, and yeah. And it looks like like a oh yeah yeah. This is like a very. <laughs> I used to live in Hanover Park, baby. Just just <laughs> sa- just south of what is it Lake Forest? Is that where they filmed Lake it or something? Lake Forest, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Got to represent. Represent. And this this place is idyllic. I mean, it's like you're looking at a lake. You're looking at the autumn. It's like beautiful trees. It's a quiet small town. You've got these these houses that are so big. You're like, is this a house or a private school? Um, (laughs) And when you do first enter, the first scene is like, you know, you're looking at a lot of kids singing in a choir at at a private school or at a school. And it's the 80s. So somebody is wearing enough blush that it looks like a bruise. Um, (laughs) And Elizabeth McGovern and Timothy Hutton are singing in this choir and they look completely sleep deprived. Like every kid in the 80s was an adult who was sleep deprived. So they just kept the look. And you're like, these teens are strugs to funk. Like, they are not getting any sleep. And you can tell that Conrad's not getting any sleep because he, you're watching him have nightmares. And he's having these dreams of drowning. You kind of learn very slowly. Like, first you learn that he's been out of the hospital for about a month and a half. Then you learn that he was in the hospital for four months. And you're like, okay, but why was he in the hospital? Why does his mom seem mad at him? Why is his dad trying so hard to, like win his affection and make him feel comfortable it's really intense to watch that unfold in the the backdrop of all this normalcy um and so the story is as you come to to learn and again this is after watching conrad who is completely sleep deprived he's not participating in class he looks like he's not sleeping he's not eating he really looks like he is crawling out of his skin in the whole film like timothy hutton did an absolutely amazing job with this role because you felt the emotion of this kid who 
just could not who was uncomfortable everywhere and could not settle down. Um, He's uncomfortable around his friends. He just like, he's seeing images of cemeteries when like a train passes. Like he's just kind of out of it. He's out of the world. He's not in the world that he's inhabiting, that he's living Mm in. So that was, I think, just, again, remarkable acting and directing. And the story that you learn over time in this movie is that Conrad had an older brother who died in a boating accident. Uh, He was there. And after his brother died, and his brother was like, you know, the sport, every sports trophy that could possibly have been won. He was kind of the the favored son. And his parents didn't really make any effort to hide that when he was Mm -hmm. alive. And they certainly didn't make an effort to hide it after he died. But his brother died in a boating accident. And Conrad tried to kill himself and spent four months in a hospital. And then, you know, we're we're kind of catching up with him where, you know, upon returning home, he just has a really hard time adjusting to life. So one thing that that is instantly amazing to me about this movie is how they center the parents in normalcy while Conrad's completely freaking out. So you're seeing the parents for the first time, like at a play and, you know, Donald Sutherland's character Cal is like sleeping through the play and then they get in the car and Mary Tyler Moore is like you know was that fun and they're going out with other couples and like they're just having what seems like a very normal night but when they come home Calvin is the only one who seems interested in checking on Conrad and he kind of sees his light on and he goes upstairs and like knocks on the door and you see that in him where he's constantly like asking Conrad if he's called a doctor if he's like made this move So you know something is going on. Mm -hmm. And the next morning at breakfast, this scene just fucking kills me every time. The next morning at breakfast, they're having a total cereal commercial breakfast where it's like OJ, coffee, eggs, French toast, like everything. Mm. And Conrad's crawling out of his skin. And Mary Tyler Moore is like, he's like, I don't really feel like eating. And, you know, the dad's like, no, you got to eat breakfast. The most important meal of the day. And she grabs the plate and is like, he doesn't want to eat. And she just throws the food in the damn garbage disposal. Like there's no attempt to understand how he feels or why she is just from that moment on. And again, it's such a small moment, but from that moment on, you're like, wow, what is her fucking problem with him? What is going on with them? Yeah. She, she, it's very early in the movie, but it's already established that she has little to no patience for whatever he's going through. No, absolutely. And it's, it's really, It's incredibly jarring to see because, again, this is 1980. We're not used to seeing moms presented this way and particularly about Mary Tyler Moore. So in this Entertainment Weekly article that I read about the, the untold story of ordinary people, Mary Tyler Moore says, Beth was a victim. I shared this with Redford, who told me in our first meeting that the non relationship Beth had with Conrad was the mirror of the non interaction he had with his own father. Beth made me think of my father and his rigidity. I imagine a bit of him in me, along with my own tendency to want everything to be perfect and to set the table for bringing Beth to life on film. So that was kind of important that like that that this is something that they discussed as she prepared for this role. And the writer of this article said that as Conrad begins to heal, the cracks in Beth and Calvin's marriage become impossible for Calvin to ignore. In particular, Beth's inability to show Conrad affection, 
audiences viewed Beth as the ultimate icy mother, but Moore never saw her that way. And so you have this person, you know, this this actress who's like, I know I'm going to be playing a stone cold bitch, but to her, it makes perfect sense that she was also a victim in that she lost her son and she almost lost her other son and she's losing her marriage and she's losing her life. Like her whole life was built around this family and it is breaking apart. Yeah, this is a really interesting component of this film for me personally, because I, this this film cannot you cannot help it. It makes you think about your own family and your own mm-hmm. the dynamics that you share with everybody in your family. And there there are times where I have talked about this with women who are around my age. Right. And I it feels like the mothers of our generation would be like the mothers of of this generation, like it's kind of, totally. you know, same, same era, obviously I'm younger than Conrad or whatever, but, um, this was not the mothers of this era were just different and they did not, a lot of them just did not have, they had a lot of unprocessed trauma mm-hmm. and it showed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they weren't taught, they were taught how to be parents in one particular way. And that did not change with the times for a long time. And it was a lot of unprocessed trauma for that too. And I think part of what really traumatized me the first time I saw this movie is that it was not too long after my own mother left my brother and I with my grandparents. Mm -hmm. And so as I'm watching Beth on the screen, I'm like, Moms fucking leave. Moms don't like their kids and they leave. Mm. And it was, she didn't leave in the film, but I could kind of, I was telegraphing that. And like, I could see that coming where like, it was weird that I was kind of learning and feeling that it was possible for moms to not like their kids at the same time I'm watching it on a screen. Wow. And that was fucking hard. That was very, I was way too young to be thinking about that, essentially. Yeah. so that was really difficult to process that like it's being played as a role, but for me it was very real, Um, very real. And I think for a long time, I kind of viewed that character the same way that audiences viewed her. Like she's just an icy bitch and like there's no redemption there. And it wasn't until I rewatched it as an adult for this podcast that I was even able to look at her um with different eyes not to say that she's not icy but that i can understand her detachment a little bit more um by understanding kind of the the trauma that had happened to the whole family i I agree and i mean it's complicated because there's a lot of things that happen in the movie with her character that do telegraph the iciness and she's Mm -hmm. very status conscious Yes. That is the hardest thing for me to take. And that's 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 where I stop feeling so forgiving of her. Right. Um because I'm just like she just loves she loves the like the dance, the social dance of like, mm-hmm. you know, ha- going on vacation and having drinks with the neighbors and going to fucking parties and like she, you know, yep. she's just all about image and you know, she's embarrassed that her son goes to therapy. You know, yeah, she's got this whole like veneer of 
that she's just like this fun, freewheeling lady. Exactly. And, and she can't deal with the reality of her life. Right. And, and, and I get, and I do feel like, yes, I mean, not to like be a psychiatrist for this fictional character, but it's this thing where I'm like that there are times when I do want to sympathize with her, obviously, but then she, she just makes it hard. Sometimes her character is like when the whole thing, when they go to Houston and she's playing golf and stuff and it's like this oh let's have a cocktail over at the clubhouse and then the second later they're in this like wicked argument yeah because calvin dared to bring up their fucking son at home who had just tried to kill himself yeah and she gets pissed about it like you're ruining my vacation by reminding me of that fucking kid at home right it's brutal it's brutal yeah yeah i definitely you know i still think about that character a lot and i think it was really brave for mary tyler moore to play that and it's so against hype for her 100 and this this movie just felt like it was a chance for every actor to show a different side of them like it must have felt so nice for them to have access to these roles um one thing that was funny there are two points that were really funny one is um why he cast judd hirsch and this, again, comes from that article that I read. Um, and Red- Robert Redford says, I saw this TV show, Taxi, that had Judd Jud Hirsch in it. And he had this rapid fire delivery. And I thought, wait a minute, this would be great because he seems like he's a little nuts. I thought the psychiatrist should appear a little crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so I love that that's how Judd Hirsch got the role. And when you're watching this film, if you've never seen it before and it feels familiar, it's because you've probably seen Goodwill Hunting, which I feel like was a, was a prototype for that psychiatrist um, kid relationship. Like this yeah. movie was absolutely the prototype for that. Yeah, uh, gotta say, love that office that he has with like Ugh. the um, you know window unit and the ashtrays and the, <laughs> ooh, the love love a good desk. like yes <laughs> old movie psychi like a psychiatrist office with like you know his sweaters and his corduroys oh my god and i love their relationship like this 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 relationship between conrad and dr Berger is really special and again it's something i hadn't ever seen on screen before i didn't i barely even knew the psychiatrist existed when i was a kid and watched this for the first time and i feel like to watch someone be pushed to their limits like he didn't let this he didn't let this kid get comfortable at all. He was yeah. like, we are going to figure this out. I'm not going to answer your questions all the time. I'm going to make you work to answer some of your own questions. And that's just how it's going to be. Yeah. And I loved that. I loved seeing that. Like, I thought he, they were both so fucking fantastic. Everyone was so fantastic in their role. Um, and the other thing I loved from that article is Robert Redford said, I thought Richard Dreyfus should play the psychiatrist. So I called him and asked. He said, I can't talk right now. I'm having a nervous breakdown. So I said, well, I won't bother you. Hope it all works out. <laughs> then, I went, <laughs> then I went to Donald Sutherland and he said, I don't want to play the psychiatrist, but I'd love to play the husband. Yeah. So I just love that, like finding out those little casting, those little casting moves. Yeah. I, Donald Sutherland, too. It's like, he's so awesome. I, we've uh, talked about him. We talked about Clute. We've talked about Donald Sutherland before. We know he's a... a huge giant what did i say about him god that episode was like maybe like our third episode <laughs> uh like I, he was like a, a sexy open mouth giant or something like that um 
I don't now I don't remember what I called him. Y'all are just gonna have to go back and listen to our third episode or something. A laconic oaf. That's what I call a laconic oaf. Yes, it's the name of the episode. For Christ's sake, love that laconic oaf. But like, yeah, I mean, he's such a good actor because he really like he really communicates his conundrum in the film in a really good way. Like he's like truly in the middle. Absolutely. He. The scene where he is like running Ugh. and he's running through the, the park and he's with his chatty friend, the chatty friend leaves and then he just starts thinking and thinking and all the thoughts that are popped through his head, his whole situation with his wife and his son and, you know, just the family drama. And then he trips and he just sort mm. of like sits in a, in the moment. Like he just like, I tripped and now I'm just down here. So I'm just going to start, you know, feeling my feelings i really fucking felt that i was like wow Absolutely. like he's such a good actor um oh he's he was phenomenal actor and phenomenal in this film too because it's it's a role that's very um very quiet like it's not an overplayed like he never has a huge outburst he never has like a big emotional moment so all the emotion that you feel when you watch him acting it's like these tiny movements these tiny movements with his face these tiny ways that he like comes close to touching Conrad and doesn't or does. And like, it's just, it's very, very interesting to watch um, him as an actor and and studying that as in this film. And again, I've, I've said it before and I will continue to say it. Timothy Hutton was fucking phenomenal in this movie. One thing that I found unbelievable, which I did not know until I read this in prep for this episode is that Robert Redford purposefully isolated Timothy Hutton and he instructed the cast and crew to not interact with him on or off the set. And so Redford said, I wanted him to feel isolated. It would be up to him what to do with it. But I didn't want him to feel like he had a lot of support because the character didn't. He was wonderful. It was a brand new thing for him. And he was really raw and totally open. And Timothy Hutton had no idea what was going on. He's like, people would like, he'd go get breakfast at the craft table and people would come up to him and he'd be like, hey, how's it going? And they were like, great. And then just like take their coffee and leave. Like he had no fucking idea that Robert Redford said that to them. I just have to say, not for nothing, but I have, I have to state for the record that Timothy Hutton and Ordinary People is pretty much entirely responsible for this type of guy that I would love for the rest of my life. <laughs> like sensitive... Dark-haired boy who is going through some stuff and he's just trying to sort out his problems, wears a flannel over a t-shirt with like some little running shoes. A little disheveled. (laughs) Yeah. Disheveled, like sweet, but like is going through something sensitive. I, I... He's the prototype. He set that table for me. And then it just, for the rest of my life, I'm always going to love these like (laughs) sensitive dark haired boys. It's true. It's fucking true. He brought it so hard in this movie. And then you see him trying to be like a regular quote unquote teenager and trying to date um, or not even date, but he's trying to even just like talk to Janine. Like, he's trying to just talk to a girl and see if she's interested and have a normal experience. And there is this absolutely crushing scene where he takes her out. They finally go out together and they're at a McDonald's 
And just as she's starting to ask him, like, what happened with you? Like, what did you do? What happened? Why were you in the hospital? He's starting to tell this story for the first time. And these fucking dopes come in, these idiot teen guys. And they start, like, putting paper hats on everyone and, like, like, making the sounds and having a good time. And she starts laughing. And you just watch the light go out of him. And I have to believe that part of that is him realizing and having been so isolated on this set because you he was able to convey that feeling of total and utter loneliness like no yeah. one in this world can understand him and it's just an absolutely crushing scene and it's on the heels of you know we find out that he had this friend in the hospital Karen who's played by Dinah Manhoff and he tries to call her at Christmas time and finds out that she died by suicide And it again, it's like it sends him spiraling. He really hates being in therapy, but he goes to see his therapist. And and it's again, these small things that are that are laid out in this film. And you think that it can't get worse. Like this kid has been through so much. It can't get worse. His brother died. That was awful. He tried to commit suicide. That was awful. His family is weird. His mom doesn't like him or know how to talk to him. That's awful. His dad's a little bit smothering. That's awful. And then you find out because his fucking swim coach asks him that he had electroshock therapy during that four months in the hospital. And you find out because his fucking swim coach is like, well, I wouldn't have let them put electricity through my head. And so you're watching this kid trying to readjust after having gone through multiple tragedies and traumas. And the fact that this girl that he likes can't pay attention to him for two minutes is like the final blow. God, that is like one of the like worst feelings in the world is when you are like trying to tell somebody that this very serious issue and they're distracted oh my god you know and so something happens like you know this like and 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 in that moment too it's like she knew she fucked up like she was just like i fucked up but i don't know how to fix it and it was agonizing. Just that, that part agonizes uh, me because you've like, I just feel for both of them because they're just young. Yes. And they don't know how to work it out. You know, Ugh, God, it's hard. And that's the thing. Like you're watching these two teenagers, one who's been through something so intense and traumatic and another one who doesn't know how to respond and still be herself. It's just, it's right. really hard scene to see. And I think the other the other things that are hard for me, because I saw this movie again in school, mind you, I had wow. a look, I had an English teacher. I won't say his name because I don't know if I legally can. I had an English <laughs> teacher who was fucking going through it. I guess his daughter was on drugs. He had like a teenage daughter from another. They lived in an, another town. So he went. she went to another school. She was on drugs and like ran away from home. And he was just had like a year or two where he was just going through it. Wow. And he showed us this movie in class. So I'm like 14, and this is the other part of this film that I feel like is traumatic for me because at this point in my life, I was suicidal. So watching a movie like this was not great for me to see because I was processing my own shit. And one of the things that is uh, two truly heartbreaking scenes for me is when Conrad's flashing back to, um, or I I think it's Conrad or either... um, or Calvin, possibly, uh, who's flashing back to the night that he was hospitalized. And as he's being loaded into the ambulance, you hear in the background 
one of the EMTs say, the cuts are vertical. He really meant business. And then you see, when you do finally see his his wrist, you realize that like he cut up and he did cut vertically. Like there are several slashes on his wrist. Like he really did want to die. And that is just so fucking hard. To, say. I, I, to this, I burst into tears watching that scene again. Um, it's just so hard to take after watching for, you know, a couple of hours, this kid struggle. And then by the point where they show that you realize and are kind of in it with him and realize why he would attempt something like that. And the other way that that becomes perfectly clear is when after Karen dies, he goes to talk to Dr. Berger and Dr. Berger is kind of pushing him and is like, you know, up to this point, been like, you know, there's someone there's someone beside your mother that you have to forgive. And, and Conrad's like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. But in this scene, he's like crying. He goes to Dr. Berger and Dr. Berger says, what was the one wrong thing you did? And Conrad says, I hung on. Mm. So when they're showing this scene of his brother drowning and his brother is like jockey and playing it like a joke because he, he thinks he's invincible because that's how he's been made to feel his whole fucking life. So when real threat happens and Conrad's trying to save his brother's life and tell him, hang on to this thing, like we got caught in the storm that fucking sucks, hang on to the boat, get through this, and his brother lets go. And his brother's playing it like in a jokey way. Not to say he deserved to die, but that the guilt Conrad is carrying is that he could save himself and he couldn't save his brother. And I just, again, fucking wept absolute monster (laughs) like i just cried like a monster i could not believe it and there are moments again in this film and i think this is part of what makes robert redford such a good director that are so quiet and so impactful Mm -hmm. and those are two of them for me where you just hear in the background the emt guys talking and then you hear conrad finally reach this truth about himself and it is crushing and there's nothing he can do about it it is the truth and that is it and he cannot heal from that because there's no because his brother still died and he was still the wrong son survived essentially Mm. and he also survived his suicide attempt so it's like yeah he oh he's just carrying it so i just again could talk about this movie for a million hours um it's a very difficult movie it's a little controversial i think for some people um because it really shines a light on how the normalcy of family can be the the downfall of a family that insistence on normalcy at all costs and we see that with calvin we see him trying so hard to love his wife and love his son and that is what ultimately crushes them is that insistence that they not be who they are and feel what they feel. Yeah. So fucking yeah, love this movie. I, I do too. I love it so much. I love it for, you know, for these very like thought provoking real, you know, moments, but, and I love it for the frivolous stuff too. I love mm-hmm. a white turtleneck on a, <laughs> you know, and the, and the, the white turtleneck and the clogs on Elizabeth McGovern's character. A plaid skirt. I love Lo- it. Love that early 80s fashion. But, you know, par- part of what I think is interesting too, watching this in the kind of modern context, and, you know, we try not to put a lot of emphasis on that when we talk about films on this podcast, but, 
you know, I think that as a culture, we, we have only just really started to become more aware of therapy and mm-hmm. self-awareness and, you know, sort of self-improvement, right? Absolutely. So, you know, sometimes I think if if you have... If you have that perspective of this modern perspective where everybody is in therapy and everybody talks about everything, you would watch a film like this and be like, what are what is wrong with this family? They don't talk to one another. They they're ashamed of 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 seeking treatment and going to get mm-hmm. help for things that are bothering them and everybody's just very like closed off. But the reality is is that a lot of people still act this way towards their own feelings and it's hard to watch that in a movie sometimes where you're just like this person is working against their best interest and really the bridge is there they just don't want to walk across it and it's hard it's hard to see that you know oh brutal well I just realized we've been talking for 120 minutes I know I know and I could talk about this forever and I'm so glad that we got to go so deep and, or, you know, to start to dive in on both of these films. And, you know, if you have the wherewithal to watch them or if you're interested in watching them, I hope you do. I think they're both extraordinary, extraordinary films for very different reasons. And ordinary people just, it just rocks my world. I understand why my teacher played it when we were 14, but we were still too young for it. So, yeah. <laughs> like, I get it. Uh, it was one of those weird ways that an adult was trying to communicate with us. Uh, didn't work. And, but it stuck with me. Like, this film really stuck with me. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad we got to talk about these two these two movies. Me too. I'm, and I'm just, as your friend, I'm, I'm happy that you shared some stuff about yourself and how this movie connected to your own experiences. I feel like that's a very valuable thing to share with. Thank you. With us who are listening. So, well, do you want to talk about next week's movies? Or can we go on from this? I don't know. Should we just end the podcast right fucking now? I feel like we should mention what movies we plan to watch next week. (laughs) And we'll just see what happens after this episode comes out. We have traumatized people um, so much that uh, we simply cannot do any more episodes. Um, you might be able to guess this one. Who knows? But um, our, the movies for next week are The Gambler from 1974 and Thief from 1981. I mean, truly, of all the themes we have ever had, this is the easiest one to guess. <laughs> If you know anything about us, <laughs> this should be an absolute cinch. Well, listen, if you have your own thoughts about this episode, I know it was, it was a, a, a a big one, uh, a lot of heavy, heavy thoughts. Um, but if you want to, you can email us at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. And we also have a P.O. box. If you want to send us handwritten letters, we've been getting a ton of those. Uh, our P.O. box is linked on our link tree and our Instagram account where you can find, you know, that's only that's one of our social media accounts. We You can find us at I Saw Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Yes. And uh, listen, if you're around, uh, you know, Apple, Spotify, leave us a review, you know, click a five stars or 
I don't know if they have a star system on Spotify, but if they do, click the most stars, meaning you like it. Uh, it really helps us out. We would really appreciate it. On that note, Danielle, it was such a fucking pleasure to do this episode with you. I'm so glad that I get to talk movies with you every week. Truly could not. Nothing could be better. I'm really grateful for you, and I, I'm glad we got to do this. And I'm glad you feel better. Thank you. Not as, not as scared as I was over two hours ago. Good. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced and mixed by Casey O'Brien. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogle. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit ExactlyRightStore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.